Welcome to the conclusion of our series called This Is Our Story. For some time now, we've been trying to grab hold of those big pieces of our story that we really want our kids to know, what we want everyone in this room to know, um, that God deeply loves us, that God calls us to build God's kingdom in this world, and um, that there is this beauty in it. And how do we live when we're, we're in the midst of a, a difficult nation that is in charge and all of those Israelite lessons that we learn. So we're deeply grateful for all of the journey that we've been on and for the um, for for Omer preaching and teaching while we've been gone and also through the series and so many others. So today we're going to kind of sew it all up <clears throat> quickly. Sound good? This is kind of my favorite thing to talk about. So here we go. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much, Lord, for this opportunity to come together to be here amongst your people and um, here in your presence. Jesus, we ask right now that you'd make us aware of you in our midst, that you would draw us closer together as you draw us closer to you, that you would give us eyes that see and ears that hear and hearts that are moved by your story. We ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so we started some time ago in the beginning. And actually, even when Sparks started, once we preached through our first five values, we started in the beginning. And if you'll recall then, in our giant, wonderful, grand narrative story, that we start in the beginning, and at very first opening salvo of our wonderful text, Bereshit bara Elohim et HaShemayim et HaHaretz, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Seven words in Hebrew, this beautiful picture of perfection and poetry and order and where God creates something and then God fills it. We learn all these wonderful things in these first few chapters of Genesis that what God creates, God can fill. So if you are here and you are feeling empty or hopeless, good news, Genesis right at the very beginning shows us that whatever God made on day one, God could fill with what God made on day four and what God made, the space God made on day two, God filled with day five and the space that God made on day three, God filled with day six. We have this beautiful, wonderful opening. And in the midst of all that, as God then creates this wonderful place called Gan Eden, right? The Garden of Eden, that in all of that, God dwells with us. That there in that place, it says that God can walk in the cool of the evening and God is with us and there is harmony. There's harmony between humanity and God. There's harmony between humanity and creation. And there is harmony in all of that essence. But very, very quickly, soon into our story comes a sneaky snake. And the sneaky snake comes and says things like, well, did God really say? And it's very good and important to realize that anyone who wants to be a literalist in the Bible is taking right after that sneaky snake right at the very beginning. Did God really say? <clears throat> and of course, he doesn't quote what God really said. And there's clearly some bad game of telephone happening and all of this stuff that had been the way that God had intended it, a forming and a filling and a harmony and beauty, at the very beginning of our story, that harmony gets taken away very quickly. And instead, we have brokenness entering in. And we have a separation then and harm. And all of that brokenness comes on in. And then right after we have this kicking out of the garden and all of this chaos, we have fratricide, we have brother against brother, and all of this mess. 
Now, if you'll recall, once they eat the fruit, which it does not say apple, but that always looks good in our paintings, so we put it there. Um, once they eat the fruit and then discover that they are naked and ashamed, um, and in all of that, God explains what the world is like now, right? That this harmony that you had is gone. That the place that where you, male and female, together, God created male and female in God's image, and it was good. And that was one of our first messages in this series, where we want you to hold on to the fact that God made you good. And in God's image, male and female, he created them. All of that has been a little bit harmed by this disobedience. And instead of harmony and um, and sort of a balance in everything, instead now we have... God explaining to the woman, not only will she have pain in childbirth, but she will have chukah for her husband, a desire for her husband, but he will rule over her. And that patriarchal, hierarchical mess comes in as a result of their disobedience. And Adam Adam finds out that it's a mess, right? It's, it's the ground is going to be hard to work, that things are going to be difficult. Their harmony with creation is gone. Their harmony with one another is gone. They're being pushed out of a place where God dwells and walks amongst them, and their kids are going to fight right away and take a life right away. Now, after just a few short chapters, God looks at all of this, and God says, I'm so grieved. I'm heartbroken that I've created this world. And so God decides to send a flood, a massive violent act where all of humanity is is harmed, save Noah and his family, the most righteous of his time, which likely isn't saying much. And as then this flood takes over, God starts to give then the earth a fresh start. And at the end of, in, in the letter that Peter writes, at the end of your New Testament, it will say, that these waters symbolized baptism. That Noah was only, only eight were saved in this big floating boat, this teva, this ark, but that these waters symbolized baptism. And we see those same symbols coming back a little bit later, don't we? And so God washes clean the earth. He makes a promise that God will never do this again. He puts his his bow in the sky, like the bow and arrow. He sets that in the sky and says, okay, never again will I harm the earth. And then he gives them the same commands that he gave them at the very beginning. Be fruitful and multiply. Let's go, people. Like, we're going to exact same commands. I'm giving you a fresh start. And one of the things we wanted you all to know and that I hold on so deeply to and that this is our story is that God is always willing to find another way to give us another start. No matter how bad it is, and this was so, so bad that God is still willing to wash it clean, to baptize the earth, to give us another fresh start. So then God's going to pick the most righteous man. He sees that things still aren't quite right. So he finds a righteous guy named Abram. And he says to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord says to Abram, go from your country, get up and get going, lech lecha, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Leave all that you have all of your security, all of your comfort in this world, leave the house of the father, the Bay of, all of the protection that you have, and go to a place that you've not yet seen, and I will give you a sevenfold promise. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
And this is the part when so many times I talk to my wonderful, amazing Jewish and Israeli friends, and every once in a while somebody will say, so Daniel, you know, you kind of like a lot of this stuff. Why don't you just convert? And I say, listen, God promised Abraham Gentiles. The nations were coming in. I'm the one you want, people. Like, I'm the Gentile that you want to come in. So here we go. And this is part of this promise in Genesis chapter 12, right? We, the Gentiles, the nations will be blessed because of Abraham and Abraham's descendants. And Abram's like, okay, so how am I going to know this? Because I, I don't have a son. Show me how I can know it. And God says to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, all of them three years old, which I don't know, like birth certificates at this point. Like, how do you figure that out? And then a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brings them all, and he knows exactly what to do with them because God grabs the language of this ancient covenant-making process. This They're going to cut a deal. And Abram arranges them in two halves opposite one another. The birds he doesn't cut. And the birds of the prey come down to the carcasses, but Abram drives them away, and they cut a deal. This is actually where we get that phrase. And as they're there, the way that this would work is that the greater and the lesser party would say, if I don't keep up my end of the command, you can do this to me. And if you, Abram, don't keep up your end of the command, you can do this to me. And so as this blood path, you would walk through and sort of say in this moment, okay, I'll keep up my end of the deal. And this is this promise God's making with Abram. Now, as Abram is sitting there right with this blood path and waiting as the sun is setting, Abram feels, falls into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness comes over him. This doesn't sound good, right? Anybody want to sign up for a thick and dreadful darkness? And as the sun is setting, Abram falls into deep sleep. This thick and dreadful darkness comes over him. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And God passed through for Abram twice. What God had told Abram was, hey, This is my deal. I'm going to keep this sevenfold covenant with you. And all you have to do, he says to Abram, is walk before me and be blameless. And Abram's like, I can't do that. Thick and dreadful darkness. So God says, don't worry, Abram. I'll do it for you and for me. So let's cut a deal. I'm going to keep my end of the promise. But Abram, if you don't keep your end of the promise, you can also do this to me. And in that moment, for those of us on this side of the resurrection, we already have a picture of God putting God's self in the place of the cross. Now, after this happens, this covenant, Abram and Abram's descendants, the rest of Genesis, eventually they get enslaved. Joseph goes down there, and he's a great guy, but the next king comes up, and he does not know Joseph, and he doesn't recall the goodness of the Israelites in the land. And when Pharaoh comes into power, the Israelites groan now. They've been enslaved for 400 years In their slavery, they cry out and their cry for help because of their slavery goes up to God. And God hears their groaning and remembers his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And this beautiful thing, you all, they don't know God's name yet. God's going to reveal that to Moses at the burning bush, right at Mount Sinai. They don't yet know God's name. They just cry out. And part of what we learn immediately in our story is that God is a God of rescue. That God deeply is concerned about those that are suffering in this world. That the young girl that is enslaved someplace, that is crying out, that does not even know the name of God to cry to, that God hears that cry and God is concerned and God rescues. And so God sends a deliverer. Moses is born. Power is confronted. A lamb is slain. The Passover happens and freedom is found. 
We have a God that rescues. We have a God that is excited about being with us. All of that we saw way back in the Garden of Eden, we have a God that dwells with us, that longs to be with us, that wants to set things back to right, even though things have gone sideways right away, that God is finding a way constantly to find a little bit of life back, a little bit of resurrection, a little bit of hope back in this area again and again. And as they are set free, they sing a song. Exodus 15, the Lord is reigning forever and ever. This king that we were worshiping in Egypt, that's what God's always, always saying, right? Let my people go that they may worship me, that they may work for me. Not Pharaoh anymore, now God, and now we are reigning. God is reigning and ruling, and we get to be a participant in God's kingdom. After God sets his people free, he brings them to a covenant at Mount Sinai because it is not just freedom from Egypt that we need, but we also have freedom for a purpose. That we too have been called and invited into God's rescue plan in this world. That it is not just God only that rescues. That God is calling now a people to come and to live differently. That God will bring to this people this beautiful Torah, this beautiful covenant, this Sinai covenant. Not just only the covenant with Abraham. Not just only that, the Noahide covenant. But now a covenant with all of Israel as they sit there. And then God will dwell in their midst. And within just two books of your Bible, you have a God that has said, I am so discontent with what has happened as a result of that sin that I'm going to wreck into history and try to start pulling you back closer to me right away. I cannot stand that we am, when I'm not dwelling with you. That Edenic experience of God dwelling with us, we long for. And God says, do all of this, Israel, and I will. And the Hebrew it literally says, I will dwell in them. I will dwell in them. And God comes and lives amongst Israel. And God even gives us a picture of God walking, just like God did in the cool of the garden, right? We have these two pillars, a pillar of cloud by day, which anyone who's walked in the desert is like, yes, thank you so much, and a pillar of fire by night, and it gets quite cold. And God is with God's people. God is there. And then in that community and at Sinai, they are being told these beautiful things like this. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the others, Deuteronomy chapter 7, but because the Lord loved you and he kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God doesn't do this because you're special or you're stronger or more interesting God does this because, because simply God loves us. Right away. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God and he is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. There is a purpose. It is not just freedom from Egypt. It is freedom for the purpose because now Israel is going to go into this new land and they're going to live there and God is going to give them a whole host of commands of how to live and how to hold God's presence in this place that the world will know that there is a God in Israel, that God will dwell there. And God says this again and again, like in Exodus 5, 6, if you obey me fully, keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That the world will know 
How does anybody else ever find out about the presence of God in this world? Israel's supposed to carry that presence into this world, that the people of God are supposed to live differently. And some of my favorite passages come right out of this, right? Deuteronomy chapter 6, where our central commandment, they ask Jesus in Mark 12, what is the number one commandment? He says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Can you imagine a a God, a deity in this world, all the Greek gods set aside that you might even roll around your head from some junior high reading where you did something about Zeus, right? All of that. No one's saying, hey, would you just love me? And could I just love you? Can we just, can we just love each other? Does that sound good? This is a ridiculous thing. And we find all of us that hold so tightly to the John 3.16 at all the football stadiums. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Listen, that's a beautiful verse. Guess what? It's not the first time God did that. Guess what he calls Israel? He tells Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let Israel go that they can worship me. And because simply because I love Israel. I love him. Israel's my firstborn son. And then in Leviticus 19, when they ask Jesus the number one commandment in Mark 12, Leviticus, they says, Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with everything. And he said, the second is like unto it. And he quotes Leviticus 19:18, love your neighbor as yourself. And then in Leviticus 19, 33 and 34, he's like, and love the stranger. Love the stranger because part of the story that you and I are to never, ever, ever forget is that we also were strangers. And God will always couple this command. Love the stranger because you were also strangers in Egypt. Don't forget your story. Don't forget that you and I together have been strangers. That we have been outside of God's family. That we have been brought close. That God is in the business of reconciling all of humanity to God. That God so loves. That God's so concerned about God's reputation. That he needs a community to carry this love into this world. That God is so deeply concerned about the brokenness and the disharmony that started way back in that garden. That God is reaching in and saying, reconciliation. Let's start to bring this all back together again. Love your neighbor. Love your God. Love the stranger in your midst. And it's not the golden rule, is it? It's not do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That sounds pretty, pretty good because it's like a math equation, right? I would like you to be nice to me, so you, I'll be nice to you so that hopefully you'll be nice to me back. God doesn't say love the stranger so they'll be nice to you. Love your neighbor so they'll be nice to you. God says, love the stranger. Love your neighbor because you also too were strangers. Have some empathy. Have some compassion. Remember who you are and remember that you're the people of God, that you've been set free, yes, from Egypt, but you've been set free with a purpose. And your purpose is to go love God and love others. And the command so frequently when God is telling us throughout Torah, throughout when the prophets are speaking, you did not care for the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the poor among you. God is always reminding them that it is us, that we were also all of those people and that we must continue to bring this into this world. So we enter on into the land after, you know, an inconvenient 40-year wandering. And as they enter on in, and then there's lots to read, go read like, four books in your Bible, eventually there will be, after a whole mess, a shepherd born named David, and God will do a covenant again. 
Because as soon as we enter the land and we're carrying God's presence with us, we forget that God in a box, we try to use it in battle. It doesn't really work very well. We've talked about all of this in our This Is Our Story series. And so now God will say, okay, David, to you and to your descendants, I will make another promise, right? You will always have someone on the throne. Messiah will come through you. And David can't build the house of God because David has blood on his hands. And so then Solomon builds God's house. And what does it say in Kings? It says that as Solomon is praying, that a thick, dark cloud comes and fills the presence of the temple. And the priests can't go in because the power of God is so great. And God dwells again. As Israel moves out of tents, God moves out of a tent. As we move into a house, God moves into a nicer house, right? In the middle of all of us, God is constantly trying to dwell with us, to make God's self available that we might find God somewhere in this world, that we might encounter God someplace, that we might see some of God's kingdom. And this works for one rule and reign until Solomon's sons get involved and, and his son does a bad thing and then there's a mess again. But this is not alarming, is it? When we find messes in the Bible and when we find messes in our life, you can just be assured that God is going to now start to continue to reenact God's rescue plan. So they are exiled. Israel loses everything, the northern kingdom in 722 BCE and the southern kingdom in 586 BCE, and the temple is gone. And Ezekiel in Babylon has this vision of God's, this heartbreaking vision of God's presence getting up and leaving God's house and going east. And when it goes east, it goes with them. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I've been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. You all, did you catch it? You have a God who goes into exile with you. God does not need a timeout. God doesn't need a 70-year timeout, does God? God has done nothing wrong. But God goes with us. God so deeply wants to dwell with us, to be with us. That God, even when we have sinned, even when we have harmed the poor and the orphan and the stranger and the widow in our midst, when we've forgotten God's name, when we've forgotten God's ways, God will still go with us and be a sanctuary for us. Now, 70 or so years later, they're going to come back to a mess. The temple needs to be rebuilt. There's things that need to be done. But they return, but not to self-rule. Persians are in charge, and then Alexander the Great will come through, and ultimately then Rome will come through. There's a small period of Jewish self-rule, but that too is a mess. And at this point then in our story, God, faithful to all of those covenants, will send another deliverer. And the deliverer is born in a manger next to a shepherd's field in Bethlehem to a poor couple, Mary and Joseph. They can't even give the full offering when they go to the temple. They have to give the offering for the poor. And there we are to believe that in the shadow of a palace of a king at the Herodian, just a few miles away, In that shadow, in this humble beginning where shepherds come and acknowledge the birth, that that is the kingdom. And that is how the king comes. Wrapped up, dwelling amongst us. John will say this. 
the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. That this constancy of God to say, can I be with you? Can I dwell with you? That God never fails or seemingly even gets exhausted by our disobedience, by our brokenness. God constantly continues to come and say, I will be with you. I will find any way to be with you. Is it a garden? that? Okay, it doesn't work. All right, okay, let's try it this way. Let's try it in the tent. Let's try it in a house. Let's try it with a people. Let's, let's try it. Let's try it in exile. Let's, let's try it with return. It's still not working. Okay. I, I myself now will come. Emmanuel, God with us. Now I will just come. And God sends Jesus. God with us, fully wrapped up in human flesh, dwells amongst us, walks amongst us, teaches us how to live, teaches us how to love, teaches us that loving God and loving your neighbor are to be joined together, that you cannot do one and not the other. And in all of that then, Jesus will also confront the powers of the time. Jesus will lay down his life He will walk into Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day during the week of the Passover festivals. Remember, John the Baptist will say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He will participate in that beautiful Passover meal with his disciples. He will make a new covenant again there. This cup is the new covenant of my blood. And whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. And Jesus, in all of that dwelling, and just like they saw the blood of the lamb shed back in Egypt those thousands of years before, now the lamb will be slain again. Once and for all, Hebrews 10.9 says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And we are given freedom from, once again, if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. John chapter 8 And Jesus there, with all of that beautiful history, with all of the the knowledge that all of the people had sitting in that place, watching Jesus on the cross, Jesus utters these words, it is finished. All of the fullness of time, all of the covenantal promises, all of that in that moment, completed. And they go and Mary is looking for him. And she can't find him, and she's weeping. She can't find the body. She presumes that he is still there, dead. They don't know to expect the resurrection. And she sees Jesus, but she doesn't know it's him. And it says in the Gospel of John, thinking he's the gardener. The the gardener? The one that taught us first in Genesis how to plant and how to tend and dwelt amongst us. And Jesus, Mary, thinking he's the gardener, where have you laid him? And she, he says, Mary. Rabboni, my rabbi. He's alive. And God now is enthroned at the right hand of the Father, dwelling with us and in us and there. And it's crazy and ridiculous and amazing. And God found a way again, this time a way that starts to set into motion the beginning, the fulfillment of all of those promises and the beginning of the yes and the not yet. That fancy word of inaugurated eschatology, the beginning of the times that are to come. And then God will dwell with us again. God tells 
Jesus tells the disciples, don't leave Jerusalem. Because you're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the ends of the earth. Not just freedom from sin, but freedom for a purpose. You are to now go out and give this message of love to the world. You have a role. You have a purpose. You have a job to do. And the power of the Holy Spirit comes out of the house of God in Acts chapter 2. And it splits amongst everyone. And it starts to dwell with all of us. And then the disciples will use all this beautiful language like, In you, all of you being built together as a holy house. In you dwells the temple. You, all of you, all, to all of us together. All of these stones together. We are now the place where God's Spirit dwells. And Revelation 1, 5, and 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve as God and Father, to him be glory forever and ever. It's all wrapped back right away to Exodus 19, to the beginning. That in all of that, now God is starting to retell this story again. And Revelation 21, 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, with humans, and he will live with them. And if you read the end of Revelation, it'll say these beautiful things like, we don't need a gate because it's always light and God is always present. And there's no need for the sun to shine because God is there and God dwells with us in our midst. And just just yesterday, I got this text from my wonderful husband having a conversation with my wonderful daughter. It said this, Dad, God's just one big shiny light, isn't he? And Kevin said, well, wow, that's a nice image. You know, without light, we couldn't see anything, and it wouldn't be warm. And she said, and it would be cold and night all the time. But the revelation's the opposite of that. It's not cold and night anymore. And God dwells with us. And we, we just, we don't even need the sun. God's presence is there with us. And all of these echoes of Eden have been pulling all the way through our text. Song of Songs, that weird book right in the middle of your Bible that you don't quite know what to do with because it sounds a little bit too sexy. So then all the pastors are like, well, it's really just an analogy about God's love for God's people. And yeah, sure, okay. Or maybe it's like two people really love each other quite a lot. And um, that's also it too. And right there in the middle of that, The woman speaks first, she speaks last, she speaks most often. It's hilarious. And in the middle of that, she says, My beloved is mine. I am my beloved and he is mine. And his desire, his chuka is for me. And right in the middle of that book that's got all this garden imagery and it's very fruitful and they're multiplying and all of this beautiful stuff, the curse is reversed. And we've gotten all these tastes, these little echoes of Eden all along the way. That the land of Israel sounds a lot like Eden. That God dwells with us. That God has a job for us. Just like we had back in the garden. Tend the fruit. Take care of the garden. Tend this. Plant it. Adam, Eve, you have a job to do. You you all still today, we all still have work to do. That this beautiful, crazy, incredible story has these threads of resurrection popping through and rescue and redemption and reputation and reconciliation and love all of it grabbing hold of our hearts at each moment and saying this is your story your god loves you your god 
deeply desires to know you, to be with you, to dwell with you. You cannot move too far. God will go with you in exile. God will come back home with you again. God loves you. God has freedom for you. God has freedom for you and for a purpose. God is with us, Emmanuel. These echoes of Eden throughout our story. I've been driving on this highway that leads to my hometown. All these memories buried inside me. I'm digging up like treasure. these echoes of Eden that we're all invited to. These stories are stories we get to continue to live in. God is inviting us into this story. You are all, each one of you, invited in. It's the reason why we have to keep telling the stories. If we don't tell these stories, we forget. We forget that we're part of this. We forget that this is our home. God is inviting us to join the story, to remember the story, to think upon it and act, the, con- the concept of remember in Hebrew, to think upon and act. God is calling us to tell this story, to tell others of the goodness of God, of how God has reached in and, and rescued us, loved us, moved us, changed us. 
I do not hide your righteousness in my heart, and I speak of your faithfulness and salvation. I do not conceal your love and your truth from the people. We're called to live this story. Our five values at Spark, these are not things we came up with, right? Love, reputation, reconciliation, rescue, and resurrection. These five values are the things we hear and see echoing throughout the story. These are things that shape us, that change us, that change how we live in this world. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come and the old has gone. The new is here. We get to be part of the story. We get that resurrection piece. We get to be rescued. We get to be loved. We get to be reconciled. We get to be back into this beautiful story again. And we get to start again, new again. And lastly, I'd like to just close with Paul's prayer from Ephesians 3. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all of the fullness of God. This is our story. That Christ dwells with us, in us. That the kingdom comes here through us as we hold on to the power of Christ, to the power of the Holy Spirit, and we start to push that love and that hope and the resurrection out into the world. And I'm so thrilled that we get to do this together, that we continue to get to see these hopes and these stories happen. Amen? Amen.